Right, we are live. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to host George Valdez, head of marketing at Monograph. I I consider George as like AEC tech influencer, and I highly recommend people to check out Monograph. He has conducted amazing interviews on the channel, and he has a lot of interesting and very diverse role set in his professional journey. And in this interview, I will aim to cover as many perspectives from him on different aspects in AC. So thanks a lot, George, for your time for this. Yeah, really excited for the invite, Mayor. I'm really uh, a big fan of what you've been doing here and bringing together a lot of different speakers um, to talk about technology, but also, I don't know, just a, a wide range of topics, which is awesome. Thank you. And so, George, uh, can you share a bit about your background, highlights from your career, and out of all things you could do in life, why you chose architecture? <laughs> okay, so I guess why did I cho choose architecture? I think that's place, a good place to start. Um, so it was actually um, a, a suggestion from by my uncle. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I had interest in animation. I had done some 3D modeling in high school and some um, animation work with a really old tool called, I think, Animation Studio or something like that. It was pretty, it's like you build up geometry by point by point. It was, it was crazy. Um, and so I really loved film and I thought that film making might be a path for me, but I really didn't have, I say, a passion for anything really. until so, and my uncle suggested that I try um, architecture because he knew of some people that I don't know if he knew him personally, but he knew that he felt that it was strongly that it was like, oh, you know, it's science and art combined. And, you know, it seems like something you'd be interested in. So I took him up on that and I applied uh, for the architecture program at FIU, Florida International University in Miami. And I was able to get in, um, but ended up doing landscape architecture instead because uh, I, for lack of a better way of saying it, I fucked up my portfolio in... Uh, <laughs> The second, the second year, I just, it was horrible. And it was really a, a point of, of deep failure for me that made me reflect deeply on like what I wanted to do and, you know, not squandering away opportunities. Um, so I went into the landscape architecture program, was amazed by the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people that go into architecture don't really get landscape architecture. And the way it was positioned to me by uh, Gianno Faoli, one of the professors, it was like, just think of it as like another material, right? Think of just the plants, trees, and like it's a living material that changes with the seasons. And I thought that was really, I think at the time I was really into like phenomenology or just experience, right, within architecture. So I, I was really motivated by that. And I still knew that I wanted to do architecture at that time. I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. And so every project, not only, I mean, basically I, I, I made it so I always partner with a, a really good friend of mine. But other than that, um, every project was catered towards architecture at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Everything had a built form as part of it. Some sort of uh, massing came out of the ground. And so I could justify uh, that I was still doing landscape architecture. Um, <clears throat> and so that, that kind of allowed me to have a portfolio, I think, that, that could stand out from a different background, but 
at the end of the day, I made it to, to Columbia for uh, their grad program. Um, fast forward through the program, I really just found out that I was really interested in the bleeding edge. Uh, every professor, because it's a lottery system, every professor was just doing something um, that, that I was interested in, was doing something not traditional. Um, and at that time, Mark Wigley was um, the dean, and there was this idea of the expanded architect, and I was super drawn into that notion of like, what goes beyond architecture? What what are the skill sets that one can have that might transcend? And having professors like David Benjamin, Laura Kurgan, uh, Toro Hasegawa, Mark Collins, who have you know an app out in app, Apple Store, Morfolio, right? Like th these were people that were just doing other things uh, that were not necessarily built buildings. And I was fascinated by that. Um, and I recognize that if this is, <clears throat> if I'm being drawn to this, I should lean into it. Uh, it also happened that I was kind of tracking the career of uh, Evan Sharp, uh, who was a year ahead of me, uh, but then left to join Facebook and then ultimately started Pinterest. And so when that, when those things kind of influenced me in thinking more about, well, what if I didn't practice architecture? What if I uh, went a kind of less traditional route? And um, yeah, I mean, by the end of like the program, I was really steeped in it and was started to consume less and less of architecture and more and more of tech and through publications and just consuming more of what, what it meant to start a tech company and all that. Um, I did end up joining the school for to run their accreditation for uh, 2013 which was a crazy experience. Um, um, the amount of work was crazy. And uh, it taught me a lot of lessons about delegation at that point. But beyond that, it gave me time to think about what my next step was. And I started a, a startup with my best friend, Adrian, um, who now is uh, the one of the co-founders of another company called Skip, which is automating remodeling. It's super cool what they're doing. But um, he, he and I started a a company called Feather and Min, where the idea was to try to turn Airbnbs into retail locations. Um, that was the kind of like mission. And we were consuming like the lean startup and we were trying to like iterate by like super small incremental tests. And what that taught us was that our tests were actually kind of off the mark. We kind of lost sight of the main hypothesis. Like going back, if we had, I'm sure if we had done it, if we would do it again, we would have just put a price tag we find somebody that Airbnbs, give them a really nice chair, put a price tag on that chair, and then figure out if anybody would be interested in buying it. What we did instead was try to focus on their pain point, right? Mm -hmm. um, and their pain point, they weren't telling us, hey, I want to sell furniture. They were telling us, hey, I want, you know, some of the challenges like key, like giving keys to my, you know, visitors, uh, soaps, uh, shampoos, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? That made us then rethink our vision and really focus more on, well, what if we brought local goods to these markets, right? In New York, what if we got local vendors to supply some of the things that would come inside of a welcome kit? Uh, bad timing also happened. This is 2013, 2014. Uh, New York City was still, and I think it's still, I mean, regulation has shifted, but advertising yourself as an Airbnb host was not nobody was doing that. So finding these people was a challenge. And that was another lesson about, you know, finding the right timing where a certain number of people are able to be accessed 
easily and, and quickly. Um, we didn't have that. So ultimately we just ran out of personal, I was sleeping on his couch for uh, about close to two months. Uh, and me and my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, we just had a journey throughout New York, going to different apartments, monthly rentals until we landed at her grandma's place in Massapequa That's Park. That's a hustle. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, but that was kind of one of the lowest points, I think, for me. Uh, so and I'll kind of zoom past. It was crazy because I got to do really weird things like uh, I, I met Wyclef Jean and was sort of working with him on a product, but it was like super surreal. It was super weird. Um, but after all that, I ended up joining a startup called Augmate super early out of a coffee shop that taught me recruitment so i was like just like calling people every single day trying to sell them to join our team as software engineers when we had hardly any funding or no funding at the time and then just a vision to bring google glass to the workplace and that was crazy we ended up raising money and i was really part of that process so that taught me a lot of the mechanics of fundraising we were able to raise 2.8 million at the time uh from um siemens property uh, sorry simon's property group siemens and some uh, ups and some other folks so a lot, a lot of institutional people um but throughout that journey i learned basically the challenges of actually you know having investor money and now trying to scale something in a very very bleeding edge technology Right. And, and trying to figure out all the UX challenges that might come with trying to put glasses on people in a work workplace environment. In this case, it was kind of like places where you had a lot of uh, dustless workers, people in the field. Uh, I went to an animal farm, like a pig farm, a cow farm. It was, it was crazy. Uh, fast forward, I left Augmate and, and joined uh, Iris VR to run product there. Um, that was an awesome experience. Again, also kind of in like the bleeding edge, working in VR, um, in very early in its maturity. I think now we're starting to see it become a little bit more mature with with the distribution of more hardware. But it's super tough to be super that early when hardware isn't figured out. Um, after about close to two years, I then ended up uh, going to work as part of a as part of an agency with a close friend um, doing consulting for like sales and marketing and as you can see I, I kind of started in that startup kind of in augmate i was kind of doing design business development and iris doing product now i'm doing sales and marketing with superform um and it's just this kind of experience wide-ranging experience really is because i'm super fascinated all pieces of business development of building a business um and I think that allows me to like understand and have empathy for all different types of stakeholders within a business, which was super beneficial when I ended up joining WeWork um, to um, be part of the global growth strategy team. It was basically like, a, I was a SWAT team of one, leveraging people in other departments uh, to help me uh, create these new showrooms in new markets. Uh, one of the challenges that we work out at the time is that you're opening up new cities super fast and you want to hit 80% occupancy in those markets. Well, one way to do that is to potentially have a physical location that helps to pre-sell that. 
But the biggest challenge, and as uh, many of the audience might be familiar with project management, is that typically you have some sort of fixed date in which everything is kind of working backwards from, right? In this case, traditionally, you might think, well, the building opening is a fixed date. Challenges that that fixed date is constantly reverberating. It's fuzzy, super fuzzy. And it can range from like you thinking that it's going to open in January to then it getting pushed back to August to then it might not be happening at all. And so working backwards from that date to build a physical, another physical location with the whole purpose of trying to pre-sell, um, that was insane because uh, that I, I got to be broker in a lot of different cities around the world. I got to be uh, or like work with brokers and basically go on site, do due diligence, sometimes do the concept design because we didn't have enough resources in different parts. And basically it was just a sheer force of will trying to push these projects forward. And fortunately we were able to put, uh, I think we got four on the map out of uh, what we're gonna be maybe 16 or 17, um, but that was a crazy experience. And then in November in 2019, I ended up joining um, Monograph um, I had already been building a relationship with the founding team. Um, we actually, when I moved to San Francisco, because I was living in New York during, uh, just as I started with WeWork, um, moved to, uh, to, to San Francisco. My wife ended up op helping to open up the San Francisco office for WeWork on the architecture side. Mm -hmm. So that kind of brought us over there. Um, was already building a relationship with Mo and Robert uh, through Twitter. Um, actually, uh, like a lot of, I think even you and I, I think come from like are connected through social media, and that that was uh, that was awesome because it was great to meet people that were almost like were just super Swiss Army knives. I mean, they were running their, this agency, Dixon and Mo, doing side projects with SEO, and it's like I admire, I learned to admire them so deeply as to like their own skills that I knew at some point it would I would want to work with them and figure out how to absorb their skills right through osmosis because um, they were just super inspiring. And so um, luck would have it that happened. They were, they were raising their seed round um, around the time that like WeWork was kind of like, you know, in the sort of late stage uh, craziness. And uh, it made sense to join the team at that time and help with uh, marketing. And so I've been there since since November of 2019, and yeah, it's been been an awesome journey so far. Oh my God, George! I must admit, like, it's super super interesting journey, and you have like worked on some incredible product ideas. So that's great to know. And uh, I'm also glad that in Colombia, like, you could see alumni and pro professors going outside of architecture and see like the ecosystem and that also like mentally prepared you that there's a whole bigger picture outside and like there are a lot of skill sets that could be translated. So uh, I'm curious to know, like how did you prepare yourself technically? And many times if you're going for this roles, people check the credibility. So how do you establish your, yourself in that space? You know, I think the first, well, you know, it, it was very difficult because the maybe one of the reasons why I never applied and didn't apply to go work at Google straight out of um, working at Columbia 
or Facebook or any of these other start uh, companies. I think they were they're not startups at that point at all. So definitely Facebook wasn't either. But I didn't apply to go there because I actually felt very insecure. I mm -hmm. didn't know how I could even enter. I had no clue. I didn't have a formal engineering background. I knew some processing and I could, you know, navigate Grasshopper really well, but I wasn't very well versed in actual programming. And so what else is there? Well, I could do UX design, but I didn't have a portfolio. And so the only real solution that felt realistic, which is kind of crazy, was to just like try to start something from scratch with someone who, who was also just as like in a similar spot. Uh, Adrian had very similar feelings coming out of Pratt. Um, and we had started a business when we were back at FIU together doing landscape. So we felt like, well, we can, we know how to do an LLC. <laughs> you know, we, we know we've done that whole process before uh, and we've managed clients and we've done that in the past. Um, let's, let's just do this and, and try it out. And I, I don't think without that support structure around me, plus my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, being there uh, as part of that support structure, I don't, I don't think it would have even been possible at all. Um, but that, that felt like the rational thing to do and seemingly irrational now, but, um, and we learned a lot because it felt like, okay, you, I could go work for another for try to go apply for an agency maybe that's doing, that can kind of be the bridge. But then I felt like, well, all my learning would be so extended outwards. If I did it, my, if we just did it and figured it out week by week, every, all, all that learning would be compressed. And it would also be much wider, a uh, wider net of, of things to learn, um, which I always felt like being a generalist would be much more valuable in, in a startup role. And it is it's really great to have generalists early on. So, um, yeah, that was kind of like the, the step to take, but, um, technically it was actually just shifting the mindset first of like, okay, I have to be comfortable with failure and that's okay. This is going to be an experiment. This might fail, but it's necessary in order for me to get to anywhere else. And it's, it's not as technical as learning any, like reading a book or anything like that, but it was really, I think the mindset's the most important thing to to change i see and like one of the reason i asked that question is many times uh, uh i i was also in that same shoe that if i want to do a business job uh maybe because i have uh, architecture background i i might not be able to get out the best opportunity so maybe i should do mba and then go or do a boot camp and go so that's why like uh on that aspect like you have done a lot of different roles in business and marketing aspect. So have you ever felt the need of doing MBA? No, no, not really. Um, I think especially now more than ever, there's so many interesting ways to learn. There's free courses. Um, the one thing that the MBA affords you, and I think it's, it's possibly only worth it if you're actually going to, um, I don't know. I, if it seems like if I were to do it, it would be trying to get into like a warden or a top school like that, because it's more about the people you meet in, in a very compressed time frame. Those are those relationships you build that can last for a very long time and can lead to um, sort of like very big upside versus just getting an MBA just to have the title 
that I did it. Um, I really look at these type of things now more as like, it's less about what you're learning, but it's the network that you're building along the way. That is much more uh, critical in my mind because that's your source of inspiration. That's your, those are the people that are going to push you. Those are the people that are going to be there to like um, inspire you to be better than yourself than you are today. And I feel it's not going to be necessarily reading, um, you know, doing a case study on a, on a specific business that's going to get you there. Makes sense. And uh, moving on to the product development aspect, can you uh, give us an overview where like, what is the role and what are the roles and responsibilities of a product developer? And uh, once, let's say, the technical folks have an idea, how do, when do the product developer chime in and like what's the process? Yeah, so like, um, you know, if, if talking a little bit through the background that I, that I described, there's a couple of different ways to start. One, one is you have, you've been able to synthesize a vision for what the world can be or some sort of problem set can be. And you feel like you have already accumulated over time the knowledge and intuition to know how to get there through the solution that you're providing. Solution doesn't always have to be technology. It can also be a service, right? But at the end of the day, it's like you're, some, some, you're going to transform something because of this new workflow that you're building now um, or product because it doesn't always have to be like a B2B thing either. Um, and so that's one approach. The other approach is to kind of be more methodical. Let's say you really actually don't have a vision about where the world could be. You actually want to be more scientific in a sense and just like talk to a lot of people in a specific domain that you might already have experience in. And in this case, through our audience, right, it's likely architecture, engineering, or construction or some, something like that. So you're going to try to apply that domain expertise to like a challenge that you've uncovered in your own life, in your own experiences and whatnot. And you want to um, figure out how to solve that. Now, it's a good, a really good place to start is from that domain experience. Let's say the third place to start, which I don't highly recommend because it's just much more challenging is when you don't have any vision about where the world can change <laughs> and you don't have a domain, enough of domain expertise to be able to like get you to a, a prototype that people will want to use. And in that world, you're just kind of searching for a problem to solve. And that can be really taxing um, in many different ways. And it can just be a lot slower. Best scenario is typically the one in which you're, you have domain expertise that you want to apply to a new, to a problem set and you want to change that problem set and, and define it and reconfigure it in some way to add value to a group of people, likely buyers that are interested in that. Um, the vision one is really, is really amazing, but that one is a whole nother type of product level mindset. You have to you have to almost rely on a whole different set of skills in some sense than in that kind of more methodical domain-driven approach, right? Because at that point, everyone is going to tell you you're wrong. 
often than not, right? And you can think of like the Elon Musk's and you know all this other stuff, like where like no, you're crazy, a reusable rocket. You don't, you're not a rocket scientist. Blah blah blah. Like you need a very special type of person to kind of uh, go in that route. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's kind of where to start. Now let's just pick one of those, and we'll start with the domain one because I feel like that, and we can keep talking more about the domain one since that one's more applicable to this audience, but. With the domain one, it's really like, okay, let's say you have, you know, you 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 currently work in some role at a firm and you realize there's an opportunity to, to improve some sort of pro process or maybe completely rethink something that's being done today. First questions you kind of need to ask yourself, and I can kind of, I actually do have some, some things that maybe we can work through here because I, um, and I love your take, Mayor, too, if you have any ideas that you want to walk through this with, but um all right so um let's just kind of say okay like what is the challenge that we're trying to solve here and and the first thing to do is kind of step back and understand okay like is this really a problem like some people use this term of like is this a painkiller or a vitamin right is this a nice to have or a must have um the way you can help to define that pretty quickly and so this could be a useful tool for people is simple two by two, where you're just like looking at things from like impact and frequency um, of a problem. So is this something that people face every single day or do they only face it once a quarter or once a year? Um, if they're facing it once a year, but it's a very expensive problem, let's say, I don't know what that might be. Let's say paying a more, uh, uh, the rent and the rent is kind of more of a monthly thing, but um, buying a property, right, could be one of those like low frequency problems for a lot of people, but it's high impact in the sense that like impact can be broken out by financial impact. It can be broken out by time as a proxy for financial. It, it can be broken down in different ways, but for that specific audience you're looking to, um, to find as a customer, um, this, you need to kind of really calibrate as to like that on, on these two axes, because let's say if it's a infrequent problem and it's low impact, then don't do it. It's just, you're, you're not going to get enough people to pay you. Um, or, or it's, it's less about how frequent it is from an individual basis and more in aggregate. So actually you could probably flip this around and say, creating a website that makes search like that's a blog uh, a blog of just like uh i don't know some topic area i'll use mythologies because i know that one of our one of the co-founders of monograph has, has something to do has a website with myths which is amazing you know not it's not every day that you're looking for information on a greek god let's say but in aggregate there actually is like thousands upon thousands of searches for that particular word and so it's infrequent on an individual basis, but very frequent in aggregate. And while it might be low impact in the sense of like um, time, you can monetize that, even that little bit of time using like ads and things like that. So, you know, I would say on an, if this is a problem that's meant uh, that's faced on an individual basis, this is the right framework to look at it. If not, then you need to consider, well, it, in aggregate, is this a problem? Is this just like an infrequent problem but it ends up being very frequent when multiple, multiple people within a company are doing it. Um, 
at the end of the day, the, the most important piece of this is just it helps you calibrate like, okay, ideally the sweet spot is something that's high impact, saves a lot of time or money or um, provides a lot of social status. That's another type of value prop. Um, and it happens a lot. It's like a very frequent thing. And so this is where you likely might want to start if you're building something. I don't know, Mary, do you have any any kind of uh, reactions to this or? Yeah, uh, actually I, I was, uh, it sparked a few questions in my mind is like, how do you quantify uh, the, the frequency and impact? So let's say a construction detail problem might be a high frequency problem for architecture designers. But if you look at if a look at a bigger picture, it might not be that bigger problem in AC in general. Like so, an impact wise, uh, I could save thirty minutes, uh, in yeah uh, of a person, but it could be uh, one person of the market, or I could save five minutes, and it could be ten person of the market. So, like it 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 could be both uh, like high imp high impact in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, this is great. This is great, 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 great. So I'm just gonna put here like um, uh, just two kind of more opposed uh, perspectives here. So like, our, let's say architecture and construction or a problem that's facing construction. I think at the end of the day, what you have to kind of break it out is like, who is the user group? Like who 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 is being impacted by this problem? So in architecture, let's say it's like BIM, let's just use BIM managers um, as an example. You know, if we play this out and we say, okay, it's architecture, well, there's 22,000 firms in the US that are architecture firms. Of that, I think the total um, licensed architects are 100 and something. I don't know, back of envelope, you might say that the entire BIM manager community within architecture in the US is maybe 20,000 folks, mm -hmm. maybe 20, 30,000 folks. Um, and so, it just depends on like, at that point, thinking about the value of their problem, how frequent it is to that group of people. So uh, the main point here is like, you wanna start with like, what is the industry that you're looking at? And then who is the main user of the solution or problem set that you're trying to uh, develop? And then kind of do the backwards math of finding out how many of them exist in the industry. Is it a growing number of people within the industry? Um, as part of a workflow, then you can start to dig deeper and you can say, okay, this problem is, is, you know, BIM manager does this specific action once every, every schematic design of a project. And then you say, okay, well, then how many, what's the number of projects? What's the, uh, on average per firm? And then, and then you start to see, okay, actually this only really happens. It's a kind of low frequency. Once you start to, you know, you start to drill into it and you say, yeah, actually this is kind of an infrequent problem. And then, ah, uh, yeah, it actually might be a kind of low impact problem because um, it, it actually only takes them like two minutes to do. Let's say if it took mm -hmm. them like two hours to do, three hours to do, that might pass into this realm. But then you have to think about, okay, if we were to redesign that workflow, what can they now do that they couldn't do before? Where does that time end up going? What is a story to tell around that that would then make this impact appear to be in both in actuality, but also 
you have to paint the picture for like, what, what more can you now do? Because you no longer have to do that. And I think that is a big challenge, especially for AEC teams that don't have marketers on their, on their teams that kind of, unless they have like really great founders that also have marketing kind of uh, chops where they think about positioning and messaging and all this other stuff, um, where it's, it's hard to tell that story to justify kind of like the high impact part. Does that help kind of address it? Because in construction, it would be like, you know, there's the labor market for construction, which is massive relative to the number of, let's say, VDC teams. And so where your product ends up navigating to is kind of defined by that. But let's take an example of Bluebeam, right? Bluebeam might be a product that's actually leveraged across multiple different teams within an architecture, engineering, and construction. Um, and so their market, total addressable market, the number of people they can service um, plus the, times the whatever revenue multiple that they're adding to that is the, you know, that, that's kind of defined by that. Got it. And uh, just a follow-up question on that. Uh, so let's say uh, we are addressing those BIM managers and we, we quantified like 20,000 BIM managers. But sometimes even if all the BIM managers like uh, in particular community share the same problem and they want to adopt or they want better workflows, like many times they those guys are not the decision maker to adopt a new product in a company. There might be a senior level authority who are making like key points to de develop. So even if there's a big market, but if the senior level is not convinced or they are not trying to spend the money, uh, like that uh, segment can't do much. That's a really great point. And like, I think this exercise itself, like the back and forth that you're, you and I are doing, that should happen before you write any code if you're a developer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like really trying to unpack that piece as much as possible and really map it out and understand it and intuit it is much cheaper to do than to necessarily build out something. Now, if, if that's a quick exercise for you, because, you know, uh, it's not been managed, it's actually uh, the labor market in construction, then, then, you know, it's a, it's a, then you might be able to kind of like jump quickly into some of those things. But at the end of the day, you always have to know who's the decision maker here. And even this early on, you should be defining who is the buyer and what problems are they facing? Because they don't necessarily intuit the same problems that the BIM managers intuit in this scenario. Their problems are like, how do I communicate more effectively to the CEO? How do I prove, uh, how do I, at the end of the day, everyone's like not trying to lose their job is, is, is the core <laughs> value that you're always considered that you're, and, and basically the other thing about it is at the end of the day, whatever solution you're providing should make them look good. It should make them look better because you're introducing and early on, actually, when you're thinking about your go-to-market strategy, you're like, okay, now I have a, a prototype. Who should I kind of show this to? Look for those people that are, let's say, the early adopters who are who in the community is actually really interested in technology and loves, uh, participates in conferences and things like that. Like that's who you kind of want to enter through. But Anyway, these are more of like the execution side of things is like less strategy. It's some part of the strategy, but it's actually, no, it's the inverse. It's all strategy, not execution. Um, but all of this really helps you 
to like craft the vision at the end of the day. Because even though I mentioned like you might not have the vision to start, this exercise is to get you to be able to paint the story of where, of what that vision actually looks like. Definitely, yeah. Like asking those questions also like provokes, oh, we didn't consider that about the product and like tries to narrow down the vision and like aligns all the dots. And, and I was thinking, so this framework uh, from my understanding, like is good for, let's say, augmenting a workflow or improving productivity and mapping out. Like what if there is like totally new and disruptive workflow, which there's no market, there's no realization yet. Let, let, let's say how Apple introduced uh, um, iPad or uh, I, something like once the user uses, then they realize, oh, I could use in this way. But before that, there's no use case or something. Well, even then, I'd say like there, it's not like you're trying to do like a, a, a simple optimization for someone. And with, with that kind of level of like, hey, we're going to change, we're going to do a fundamental change into how something is done. I still think that requires some intuition about um, key value propositions that people will face forever. I think Jeff Bezos says this about like, you know, at the end of the day, People want things to be cheaper, faster. It's like these kind of like, as opposed to like what will change, his whole argument is like to focus on things that won't change. And that will always, and that's kind of like how Amazon operates is that that's driven completely through that philosophy. You can do the same, apply the same mental model to these challenges you're trying to solve. At the end of the day, people want things to be faster. People want more choice in some, in some instances. People want uh, mobility and flexibility. And those things end up becoming apps on a phone, right? It's like you use those things as kind of like the touchstones to be able to envision what a future scenario might look like. But even then, I think it's still like, there's still analogies that are being drawn from existing software, right? I mean, the phone is just like, oh, what if the computer was this? the size of your phone like what would that enable if you just shrunk it so people are it's not like there's this uh there it, it doesn't it's not in a vacuum right mm -hmm. this is a technology is always in constant dialogue with what exists before it what other images people have made in the past stories people have told sci-fi whatever you know that is that inspires people to have a vision and they want to make it a reality um, so I don't think it's kind of like, yeah, it's not in a vacuum. Got it. I, I see your point. And I was thinking, let's say, uh, once we have an idea, we do this exercise, we have a vision, we have a roadmap, then I could see there could be like three or four things one could do next. One could have like a lean startup approach and get a website and see how many people are interested or one could make a prototype and let it float out in the world and gather interest in the market. Or one could do just like, I, once they got identified the customers, they do like interviews and find out the real pain point. Like what would you, what one should do next? Yeah, I think to try to get, um, talk to as many people about the assumptions you're making as possible. That is so much cheaper than doing anything else. 
It's just like validating and you can validate in different ways. One validation is like, um, I was an example. Uh, my wife and I are doing this. We're kind of looking to build this app. And one of the things we're looking at is Reddit. And we're looking at the communities in Reddit to see if like, as are, are there already conversations happening around what we're looking to solve for people? What is the nature of those conversations? What are the challenges? That are, so there's different ways in which to do the research, um, depending on the problem you're trying to solve and who the audience, where, where does that audience live? Where do they congregate that could make that easier? If it's from your domain experience where you have coworkers that face that challenge, then it could be as easy as like mocking something up as a wireframe. It doesn't even have to be, um, it could be a sketch. It's just like getting the conversation to unpack all the questions that might come up that will inform your development later. So it's really an exercise of surfacing up the things that you did not anticipate or assume, or like all, all the wrong assumptions you made. I see. And like, I'm just thinking once we identify, let's say high impact and high frequency work, and it's even possible once you start developing a product and you start integrating features, you might get into from high impact to relatively lesser impact and high frequency. And I'm just thinking about scenarios about Flux, IO or Katera, like they, they had a promising uh, like proposal and problem they were solving, but uh, like how, what went wrong in this metrics? Yeah, so in those scenarios, you mentioned Katera, right? Yeah. As well. Um, I think when you get to that level where you believe you've understood the problem beforehand and are looking to materialize it, I I don't know enough about the inner workings of Katera to like talk about like the strategy at all. But my assumption would be that um, there's a lot that can go wrong just through growing a business. Um, I think someone else has said before, like, you know, startups die from um, uh, indigestion. Is it not indigestion or something like that? It's like by e it's, it's from eating too much, not eating too little. Um, and so I, I think it's where the ambitions can kind of get away from a company plus mismanagement, you know, of resources and, and, and all that, that can lead into a spiraling uh, situation. I think with the instances of flux, I know a little bit more about that. And it's likely more that, again, it goes back to this kind of like people not coming directly from a, from a area of domain expertise necessarily, looking at a new, at a problem and not doing this exercise to really understand the workflows that would uh, make it a viable solution at scale, right? This is why I get very concerned in general about startups that only try to focus on BIM managers, let's say, as an example, because oftentimes it comes, a lot of these ideas come from that world and that culture, and they're trying to solve their own problems. But then the challenge ends up being the monetization strategy of that is the challenge, because ultimately um, there's less focus on the problems of the management team in general and really unpacking what that 
what they need and also the workflow side as well. Like, you know, where like open source is a really great avenue to fit in because then you can put services on top of open source that would be more interesting and sellable to leadership at that level because a leader would rather pay up or opex right they rather pay a service like a one-time service fee or whatever uh feature like a consultancy to kind of do a, a, a specific project and use internal resources to do that and so that's where like the business model plus the audience that you're selling to and how you configure that really matters um so yeah i don't i think i think it comes down to that it's like one instance it's like maybe they had a great opportunity but they overspent relative to like what they knew at the time um and so it's kind of like put, put it's like putting fuel into something that it's not really figured out fully you're just hoping that it's going to explode and like you're going to it's going to take you where you need to go later but um whereas with with the flux scenario it's likely more of the market they just didn't define the market appropriately and didn't focus on um maybe a bigger opportunity got it and like what do you speculate uh the future successful uh ac startups uh would be would they be horizontal vertical uh thick addressing thick middle or api api driven business like what's your take yeah so um you know at monograph we are a complete vertical solution right um most of the and i'll use this as an example because i think it's relevant um you know most of the landscape of let's say quote unquote project management uh sort of like time tracking tools have really been on one end either somewhat verticalized where like basically they say that they service the industry but they also service law firms they also service accounting firms all sorts of other quote unquote professional services and then on the other spectrum the more horizontal you have the asanas of the world harvests toggle things like that that are meant for anyone and everyone and they really try to do a, uh, as generalized of a solution as possible within a specific use case we believe that there's a huge opportunity to be wholly vertical within architecture and we think that there's so much more opportunity to provide better experiences for that ecosystem of architects clients um sub consultants within uh, engineering firms as well that it's enough of a market to focus in on and rebuild workflows entirely on how firms are operated um and again it's because we we're we're tackling those kind of challenges that are high impact high frequency across the entire organization not just like very infrequent or low low value uh challenges god and what was some things uh which you had in your roadmap and you assumed uh this should work well but it didn't work out as per your expectations i think early on it's it's likely more to do with some of the workflows that we've built out where we made assumptions about like collapsing workflows that didn't make maybe didn't take into account that while it was incredibly faster to do it the time in which you did it did not line up meaning that 
let's say there's step one, two, and three, you would assume that going from step one to step three in one shot is the best outcome. In reality, step one happens at a very different time period than step two or step three. So while you were able to, in, in practice, like collapse it and save certain people immense amount of time who were doing everything kind of at once, for a larger number of people that actually took time between doing step one, step two, and step three, it actually changes completely the solution, right? And actually makes it um, where we have to go back and actually think more deeply about step one, step two, and three, and actually carve out the uh, specific feature set to be more focused on each of those steps. Um, that would be one, I think, more of one that's like very top of mind. But it comes, it comes down to really like unpacking, um, you know, one of the challenges about being remote and the sort of being a startup within COVID era, uh, and I think that's going to change in the future, sometimes you can't do the kind of in-person shadowing you would love to do, right? And actually just sit down next to someone as they're doing their work and understand like, okay, okay, you're using post-it notes. You're, all you're doing, your whole management system is just post-it notes, right? You don't have that um tactile sense so we have to do a lot of interviewing to try to unpack that and it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution i'd say another kind of interesting um insight that we've uncovered because we're so focused on this space is like how much and, and this is they don't tell you this is you know you read like practice operations or practice management books on architecture and these kind of insights aren't really talked about but like the fact that invoicing is completely defined by clients or mostly defined by clients, not so much defined by the firm is a really funny situation to be in as a business because basically it, it kind of throws off your whole standardization of like how you get paid. And we're, we're starting to uncover a lot of challenges that actually that firms face from a financial perspective, really driven by the, less strategic way of how they invoice and who owns the relationship of invoicing. But so anyway, like all that to say is that we've, we've made decisions early on about invoicing that are now being, we're now about to release our new invoicing workflow, which is now taking into account that reality more so than we had in the past. But um, yeah, I'd say that it's, that's also the kind of beautiful thing about it is you're constantly learning and iterating through the whole journey. That's great. And thanks for sharing that insight. Uh, what are your thoughts on AI, blockchain, or metaverse opportunities for AC? So I think this kind of goes a little bit back to also your other question, which I only answered in one direction about like the future of business models, like API driven and stuff like that, kind of tied. Um, I think that it's almost it's so kind of open right now. Like, I don't think any, anyone's fully figured it out. There's still so much debate to be had about whether blockchain is, is at any, is just, you know, it's finding its use case essentially. Like there's clear opportunities within a financial perspective to disintermediate a whole host of players that uh, don't work 24 seven or, you know, have incredible lag time for uh, financial transactions. I think that that will open up a whole new realm of micro payments and, and, and kind of use cases around that front. This idea of a distributed database, however, 
those use cases are a bit much a bit more difficult to really unpack. Um, so much of it right now is still kind of wild west and very hype driven, um, where like any new NFT that comes out is just pure speculation. Um, and if anything, one thing that I get concerned about is like what happens when the entire like we already live in a financialized right world, right? It's what speculation is inherent to the system as it is today. But I do feel that what these by increasing the velocity of transactions and really smoothing out um, all of those previous limitations that people had and introducing new forms of assets and in, in like exploding the kind of asset category through NFTs and things like that, you are now exposing like the speculation is now incredibly rampant. Like, I, I think that there's something we just haven't really even caught up yet. But like, what does it mean when everything is built on sand, like mm -hmm. fully? Yeah, but uh, to be honest, like uh, I feel a bad, uh, a bit bad because like, like 2017, like this 2021, like blockchain had a ride. A lot of artists tried out models and minted and made their career or became financially independent. But even if we haven't, AC haven't figured out a proper use case or we are still discovering, I don't see like a proactive experimentation with uh, with it. Like, let's just have our BIM models minted. In worst case, no one will buy it, but like it could go in many directions. Like, why are, like, it doesn't take much to do that. Like, right. No, I think, I think, no, you're right. And there are, there are use cases like that when it comes to, um let's say intellectual property and the management of that but even then there's it's still questionable because the legal framework like the world that that blockchain sort of operates is this like uber libertarian new world order no financial no boundaries right there's actually no states essentially but the real world that it's trying to operate on top of is still legislated it's still uh the boundaries are uh are real right there's like uh you know so like when we talk about ip and all that stuff like well how is that actually ultimately enforced um who enforces that and that part hasn't yet caught up necessarily to that now once that does start to happen then i think you know all the experimentation that's happening now will pay off but it's very similar to my experience is going back to like google glass like Google Glass was this huge hype thing. Oh my God, it's a computer on your face now. Like it's going to be able to unlock all these kind of like handless sort of scenarios where you can now do more information right in, in, uh, at a glance. Um, and it kind of died off for a lot of different reasons, but it still actually kind of lives on in the enterprise. Like there are factories that are still using Google Glass. And like those use cases are starting to develop over time it's likely that in 20 years you're going to be like whoa i didn't know google glass was back i didn't know like what but it's because it kind of lost the, the the shine all that to say is that you know the the we like to think that certain things happen overnight but it's likely because they're actually picking up on very specific tailwinds that are already in place so if anything it's more interesting to think about like 
what are the untapped use cases in a world today? The fact that like, you know, I don't know, there's seven, eight billion people on earth, nine billion people on earth, uh, maybe seven billion of them own a phone. And we're not talking about just any phone, like they own likely a smartphone. And that is becoming even more and more distributed where like the ability to unlock brand new, brand new commerce and things like that is completely possible now, right? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm more curious about what can be done with those platforms that are now maturing where the industry has not even like looked at that yet fully. Um, then to say like, you know, these other things that are way in its infancy. Like, yeah. yeah. Even putting your BIM model, right? It's like, well, what does that mean for security? What does that mean for like, what, what, what kind of say does the client have on you putting like the intellectual property of a model? At what resolution are you putting that model on there? And let's say it's able to be at multiple scales of resolutions to some sort of service. Um, who maintains it? Who, you know, like what's the versioning look like? All that kind of stuff is the, the, because uh, at the end of the day, like even these NFTs, they all resolve to a database, to a, a, a normal database somewhere or maybe a distributed mm -hmm. database, but with a file, you know, like it's, it's a weird, it's not fully, I don't know. It's not as crazy. I see. And like, I totally resonated with your point of like, even if uh, for a new trend that pick up, there were tailwinds in the past. And then I was thinking, yeah, actually AI had its winter moment. There were like few explosion and suddenly the chip, uh, uh, usage like fostered it and even metaverse like there were metaverses in 2006 but it could be like another revival moment at this point where a lot of companies are going bullish and that's when i was thinking wait you were working on google Gla uh, glass in 16 17 but if the metaverse is driving a lot of money and investment in those production and that's uh, seamless frictionless integration of glass with metaverse I think that could bring back the whole revival. Yeah, I, I, th I, th I think that is true. Like the hardware is less of a limitation right now, right? Quest 2, lot, millions of, of people have bought that device. Um, you know, all these devices ultimately compete with other forms of where you spend your time, right? At the end of the day, the limit of the metaverse is the fact that you have 24 hours in a day. And so eight of those, you're probably hopefully sleeping maybe uh, in this industry. Um, and let's say you then have eight hours of recreation. That could be it. Or, or if you use it for productivity, then you basically have this thing strapped onto your face for eight hours, which has probably unintended third order effects on your health and mental wellness that we don't even know how to track yet. And whenever I think about this stuff, I also, I'm reminded of that uh, Paul Virilio uh, quote of like, uh, uh, once, uh, well, something about like when the ship was invented, so was the shipwreck, right? Like the, there's always a counter weight to any new technology and how it can be leveraged that we just like with Facebook is a perfect example of one in which the unintended consequences of bringing the world together to communicate in real time was that 
that's not always a good thing. <laughs> that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily like doesn't necessarily mean that you get utopia. It like it actually means that you have uh, asymmetrical relationship potentially between the type of information being put out there and how it's absorbed by whom and whatever. And so then you end, it's like, it's like taking communication and saying, Hey, let's add thermal dynamics to it. Let's just, let's just put thermal dynamics into the mix and let's see what happens, you know? <laughs> oh, by the way, like we are also going to introduce mechanisms in which to like control certain variables of that thermodynamic pro- of those thermodynamic properties so that it is overweighted in some for some to the benefit of someone versus someone else. Um, so yeah, I, this is this is where like even with VR, I was a huge proponent of it within the workplace and still am about using it for design purposes. Like we should we should be bringing clients into VR at the very first sketch that you have three in three dimensions because what you want is complete buy-in throughout the entire process mm-hmm. and. What you don't want is continuous design reviews and holdouts and lack of decision-making because you went ahead and like designed, spent like four months of designing something to show a client. And they're like, I actually don't get, I don't get it. Like, what's this view? Where am I looking from? How high is that? Just put them in VR and they'll get it. It's like immediate. But what I'm not a big fan of necessarily kids growing up in VR I don't know. That's kind of like, because I just know that there's going to be all these kind of third order effects that we just don't even know how to understand. Yeah. I was just thinking like if VR technology, AR technology has been up for a while and it's very rational that, oh, we could build models. And if you communicate on the same language with you and the client, there's lesser miscommunication and, but still, uh, we are making physical models. We are not fully integrated in, in the, and there are like some pros and cons of physical models as well, but uh, it doesn't take, uh, uh, I don't know, like there's some friction in the industry to adopt new technologies. That's a different topic. So Yeah, yeah that, that's the other reality too. Um, and, but I think that, I think that kind of legacy thinking is changing as new generations enter who are now growing up to in a very different mediated environment right i mean i feel like um and we're starting to see examples of even like don't even go all the way to like instagram i'm sorry no, don't even go all the way to like vr it's like look at instagram um we wrote an article about this apparently not very well known in architecture but uh, this interior design company, uh, Studio McGee, that they are on Netflix. They have a show on Netflix. They have a huge Instagram following. Basically, uh, a married couple that um, Shay McGee went to Instagram to kind of start her interior design career. And the one innovation that she did early on at Instagram as one of the first influencers there was like showing the paint color that she was using, like actually saying, oh, I'm using William. It seems like, oh, that's such a non-technical thing. But guess what? Like they're now, those little innovations in being able to share things that people didn't share before lead to like 90 million annual revenue this year. Whoa. Over six years. I think they started like only six years ago. 
And now they have a TV show on Netflix. They have IP. They're getting picked up in, in all over the world. And it's like, okay, clearly, like we have yet to even exhaust the potential of the tools we have available to us today. Mm-hmm. Let That's alone how we're thinking about the future. I see. And uh, can you talk about uh, spatial syndicate and what are the metrics uh, you guys look before investing into a startup? So I guess for context, uh, spatial syndicate is, uh, it's a group of, of, a group of us basically that have background in architecture who aren't necessarily in architecture anymore that um, have a, a series of LPs as part of this syndicate on AngelList an LP is a limited partner in a, a what, what would you would call it like a, a sing that we basically find startups or startups come to us, they pitch us. We, if we, find, which I'll get to in a minute about like, if we think that there's a real, we, we believe in the founding team, we believe in what they're doing. We, we believe in like um, the market that they're trying to address and everything we just talked about earlier, th- those things are kind of in check. Then we will um, basically share this potential opportunity with this community um, in order to raise a certain amount of money that that, fir- that that company is allocated to us to be able to participate in their funding round. Um, limited partners are those people who may or may not have background in architecture that want to participate in a per deal basis. So it's not like a normal VC fund where they're going to commit a certain amount of money over a certain amount of time and and then the VC fund gets to use that money as it needs, right? Or as deals come up and there's less like oversight. In this case, it's really more like, hey, we found, you know, we think this company is amazing. Here's why. Let's bring them to talk to this, this community of people. Um, and then that community will then say, okay, I want to participate here or not. So um, we did this because we felt that one, there was a new opportunity using AngelList to do it. Um, which is the platform in which a lot of these syndicates operate. Um, two, a lot of us come from background in architecture. We're meeting a lot of startups that come from the industry that are you know similar stories as ours. And there's actually very little funding avenues for people that are interested in, not just necessarily in this space, but just thinking about spatial technologies in general, whether that's physical products or, or uh, SaaS app, you know, uh, B2B uh, software. So, well, our, our criteria in a sense is a lot of what we just talked about. It's the, but it, it leverages highly on like, who is the founding team? Do they have that kind of domain experience to tackle this problem? If not, if they don't fully have the technical experience or the domain experience, are they extremely passionate about this challenge? Um, are they as people, like people who you feel like they can persevere, right? Because a lot of early stage starting a business is not easy. Mm-hmm. So you're also like trying to understand like, is this, is this um, team like willing to go the distance on this front? Like what's that look like if it's multiple founders? What's their relationship like? Do, is, do they look like they work well together? Because that's what I, uh, I've experienced it where that hasn't been the case in uh, it's not good. So those are kind of like early signals, plus the idea of the market, 
who are they servicing? How frequent is this problem? Is the is it at a right price point that makes sense? How deep have they gone into this problem where they've answered a lot of the questions that one might have about it? Um, and then at the end of the day, like, can we add value here? Is there anything that we can do to help? Um, and so those are the kind of criteria, that's kind of the, the framework that we use when we're thinking about about it. We get really excited, especially if it's a former architect as part of the team, even just one person on the team, I feel like, okay, that there's something great there because that's an avid, they, they have someone that's a kind of a Swiss army knife on the team and that's, we kind of resonate with that. I see. And yeah, two days ago when I was interviewing Ian, he mentioned you guys invested in Hyper. Yeah, that was a no-brainer. <laughs> that, <was, laughs> that was like the easiest. Uh, yes, uh, let's let's figure let's try to make this work and figure it out. Um, because, yeah, I mean, Ian is a perfect example of of like in that exercise model, he's moved transition away from architects specifically, likely to do with the kind of frequency problem, right? and the high Im the impact and transition a lot into other industries that service architects who have a more volume problem. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes that kind of wedge for him and the, and the team to be able to operate in and then expand into architecture once it's like a no brainer for architects to start to leverage it as well, because those early adopters within those BIM teams might become new leaders at some point and then rethink the way the whole thing is done. I see. And how does your relationship with the startup look like? Uh, do, do you guys uh, have a pitch? And then if you are interested, then you provide monetary as well as like network support? Yeah, at that point, yes. So pretty much that's, that's how it goes. Um, we'll kind of meet with them. They'll send us over a deck. We'll kind of talk to them about what they're doing. We'll then come reconvene internally and say like, hey, you know, let's say I meet with someone I was like, hey, I'm, I think this is a really interesting opportunity. Here's why. Um, I'll share the information that I've received. We might meet and then, and then um, um, decide on like who want, who's going to lead it ultimately and, and then kind of rally the troops around uh, getting any kind of additional information or whatnot, but it's typically one point person. Uh, I will say that a huge, uh, huge contributor to the Spatial System has been Kat Dov, uh, one of our, our team members, and she is uh, a rock star and has shepherded many a deal, uh, which is inc always incredibly impressive. Um, but yeah, so she, she's been a phenomenal force in the, in the team. Yeah, like I follow Kat's uh, Twitter feed and it's amazing. Uh, hopefully someday I, I I would like to interview her on the show, and she oh, is also she part great. of City DAO, which is amazing. She would be great. Yeah, and lastly, <laughs> I want to know like how can we make AC Tech product viral? Like, what's your marketing advice? Oh, how to make it viral? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have the answer for that one yet. Actually, I do a little way like. The way to make it, the way to ultimately make it viral, I think has to do with how you design the product. Um, as an example, you know, Monograph has virality of a certain kind embedded and that's through referrals. People use it. We have a referral program that we've embedded in the product. So if you share a link, you get one month free when you give one month free, 
this, this is kind of crazy because it technically means that if you're a 12, 20, 30 person firm, you get a whole month free of monograph. If you share it to a firm, that's like seven people, that's less than you, right? It's like asymmetric payoff, but we, be, we believe that like giving that opportunity for firms is going to be net beneficial for us at the end of the day. So that's one mechanism that we've uh, installed in the product. There's other forms of virality. Um, from the marketing lens, we think about it from a, maybe a perspective of growth loops, which is to say a lot of our programs have things embedded in them that encourage some form of sharing so that more you get more visibility within other networks than if you would have just you know, if it was a one sort of a, a transaction, like I just sent you an email sort of thing. And we're working more and more uh, with our teams to, within the, marketing, within, the, within the marketing team to really iron out those different growth loops. One example might be, um, here's one kind of non-intuitive. So we have a job board, right, um, for our customers and actually for anybody that wants to post uh, job opening on the job board. Um, one of the interesting things that we've come across is that people will share the posting of the job opening on the monograph board, not necessarily on their own page, on like their own website, which is kind of mind blowing to us to some degree, because what it shows is the power of the brand that we've been really uh, cultivating over time. We really, I mean, from a marketing perspective, one other form of virality is just the word of mouth of coming, of feeling like, wow, the monograph team is really cool. Like I might not get, I might not fully understand what they're doing. <laughs> Potential because I haven't tried the product myself, but like you should go check them out because I think they do something that you're trying to solve, right? And that's that's what we try to do a lot, um, where we think of Monograph almost as we think of Nike. Um, we want to support the industry by supporting its champions. That's why we do the webinar and the podcast to really try to interview operational leaders who hardly ever get the chance to really talk about how they're running the business. And, and, and turn them into the athlete, right? And so we, our whole strategy is on that sense, from the brand perspective, we try to create word of mouth opportunities. We think there's a huge opportunity within our product to increase the way in which people can um, share to other organizations and work collaboratively that will be its own kind of viral engine. But yeah, I think th these are the ways in which we think about it. It's kind of different modes of it. Um, I don't think... And then we have the community piece, which is its own mechanism. But I don't think there's like a one size fits all solution to just like instantly turn something into, into viral. I mean, we could go crazy and do something really like mischief. I don't know if you've heard of mischief, the brand where they do like these kind of crazy drops. Um, we could do something like that. Well, I would love to do something like that, but <laughs> it might not be, it might be vi very short term live virality where it's like, it's in sort of a vanity in a vanity way, not as a real like, oh, I want to try your product now because you dropped a really cool shoe that's monograph branded, <laughs> you know. But people would love monograph uh, hoodies or something, but I'm just kidding, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we have actually clothing. If people do want to order clothing, we do have clothing available to buy on our store. Uh, we don't have it on our website. So if anyone's interested, just uh, reach out to me. I'll give you the link. Um, but we have some pretty dope swag and we think about it in, in that sense. We do think of monograph also as a lifestyle, um, brand as well. Like we hope that we resonate with people on these topics of wellness. Um, you know, we just released a whole article on burnout, uh, culture in the industry and that we're advocating for change 
in the industry in many different ways. And we try to live, live it. I mean, we have a four day work week. If you look at um, our team, it's incredibly diverse. Um, and we believe in being people first. And we really believe in the values that we talk about. And we want to see the same change happen within the industry. But we have to be in some ways, uh, we have to live it ourselves. That's great. And I must admit, uh, I have been to Monograph's website. Incredible job on the graphics and the experience. Like, it definitely stands out among all all the website I've seen. Yeah, that that uh, get ready. Uh, next year we have a super good redesign <laughs> of the website coming, uh, led by uh, two of our team members, Joanne and Meg. Meg is a brand designer who was creative director at the Shed in uh, New York, and also a designer at the Whitney. So she she has like this incredible chops that is it's just gonna be so sick. <laughs> I can't I can't wait. It's so cool. So That's different great. too, which is really a hallmark of what we try to do. Yeah. And George, if you had unlimited time and resources, what are some ideas you would like to work? I don't know if I want to give away some of these ideas <laughs> that I have in the back of my mind. Um I think there's huge opportunities on the maintenance side of the industry. You know, I think one of the reasons why architects actually don't get software development is because it's so unlike anything they ever have to do. They don't have to worry about maintenance. And so when you have to like think about software development is also to think about maintenance and it's to think about concepts like technical debt. And so to understand that like actually resourcing is very different for every new thing you build you have to expect that you're going to have to like keep building it in perpetuity. You don't have to think about that once you deliver a set of drawings or right that you kind of, uh, there's a clear handoff. And so I think there's huge opportunities to think more about maintenance. Um, I think there's huge opportunities to think about what happens when new tools that allow for visualization of space and are in the B2B environment. Um, what new, what, what, what opportunities for cross-functional collaboration around physical things or the digital representation of those physical, physical things um, might exist? Like, kind of crazy, but what if you brought, what if you saw problems that finance teams face in organizations with the allocate or workplace strategy teams? And I think some companies are already addressing this, like SaltMine is one of these that seems to be addressing this problem. But it's more thinking about like, okay, what does space mean when it's operational? And how do we then develop? And I don't think it should be an architecture firm developing the software full stop. I think architecture firms should invest <laughs> in startups that are tackling it through both funding and also being customers. But that, uh, yeah, ultimately like focusing in those areas is I think a huge opportunity. Got it. And I'm curious to know your thoughts. Like we have service-based model and there are, I've seen Twitter threads where people talk about productivizing architecture and modular models or to be more effective, to, to have better business and better profit. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You're saying to, sorry, to be specific, like modularizing what, like physical buildings or modularizing processes and standards within the firm? Uh, processes in the firm like how can we have like more 
like is is there a product based opportunity in the workflows and like how do we deal yes uh short answer monograph will definitely be that um part of that solution but that's a software you need mindset and you need team structure to enable that because with any new software, you now need a whole new team of people that think actively about how to deploy and manage and maintain that software throughout its life cycle. This is not necessarily a bad thing because like BIM managers are clearly like the most tech savvy people in an organization. They end up really dealing with like Revit or Archicad or whatever other software and all of its intricacies. And they're the ones that are kind of at, at the bleeding edge typically of like how to exploit that tool, right? Um, this the gap here when we think about processes within a firm in general is that that team doesn't actually exist at the operational level for most firms around the business like everyone is in a silo marketing's in a silo business development's in a silo there's no one that's no one operationally that's coordinating the practice operations of the firm so no one is being able to say like actually the data that goes into marketing that data should be wired through an api call into this other software and also wired up through an API call to this finance software. And this will also be all super interconnected so that we have five KPIs that we're looking at every single quarter. And every team knows how they're contributing to those five KPIs, but that operational leader is the sort of orchestrating the alignment. So when we think about like even initiatives that happen pretty ad hoc right now, where like committees form and all sorts of stuff like that, it should actually be top down in some sense. And as opposed to just sort of bottom them up without any real enablement happening from, from the company, right? It's like, oh yeah, just use your own time and we'll support it. But like beyond that, financial resources, maybe not so much. As opposed to that model, say like, okay, now that we have these five levers that we know we can pull on, like we can get more demand, more, more, uh, more cost, more clients, whatever, more projects, blah, blah, blah. How do we focus on key initiatives to drive those metrics so that we're in totality improving the, the whole output of the company so that more work comes in, right? I think that thinking as a firm as an equation is an opportunity and that's nothing to do with software. I mean, little to do with software, more to do with the people you put in place to run that. That's that's interesting. Like that's very provoking thought. And now like I'd like to wrap up the interview with a rapid fire questions and you will have like five, 10 seconds to answer it. In a brief. Okay, I'll try to be brief. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Uh, which city is in your travel bucket list? Oh, uh, travel bucket list. Uh, and I, I'm trying to, <laughs> uh, let's see, Paris, huge, would be uh, huge for me. And then um, um, would love to go to Recife, I think, in Brazil, like some of the more like coastal cities that apparently are amazing. And um, I think that's, and then go back to Tokyo, just like mm -hmm. travel all of Japan and Korea. I take my dad to Korea. He's really big into, he's a Cuban who's really huge into, into South Korean soap operas, which is fascinating. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and any technical or business book which made a big in, impact in your life? Uh, yes. Uh, Trillion Dollar Coach, the story of Bill Campbell. Uh, who was the uh, coach for uh, not only the Columbia football team, though I don't really care as much, but more of uh, the coach for Steve Jobs, uh, 
the Larry and Sergey of Google and pretty much like the Sherpa for a lot of executives in the Valley. His story is a story of not just of like mentorship, but of love in a deep sense. That's very, really great. So I'd say that one's an amazing one. I see. And how does a day in your life look like? Oh, um, I guess it's uh, everything revolves around my daughter in the morning. Uh, and then it's pretty much me standing here for the next eight hours, maybe get some food. We have a four day work week, so I just have to make sure that I take as much advantage of that time as possible. And so, um, and then after that, it's just kind of like back to like cleaning up the kitchen after and cleaning up the, basically whatever my daughter's done throughout the day, it's kind of helping, helping around the house and, uh, giving her a bath at the end of the, the day and putting her to bed. And if in future you get an opportunity to teach a course at Columbia or any university, what content would you like to teach? Uh, business models, for sure. At the end of the day, every student has to have a product idea that they're putting out in, in trying to get real customers for. And I wouldn't care what it, it could be an Etsy shop. It could be like, I don't care. The whole objective is to get revenue at the end of it. And through that, they'll learn more probably than they would have in the whole three years of the program. Got and are there any like online courses you recommend which would help? Um, online courses, uh, I don't know. I think like CodeCat, not CodeCamming, sorry, Coursera has really great courses on MBA type content. Um, like you can take courses at Yale from um, people like Professor Schiller or whatever to talk about financial markets, all sorts of different topics. So I think it's, yeah, any of those is good. Right. And what are your hobbies? Uh, playing music. I really enjoy playing music. And um, that's my hobby. I have a, I bought a piano and I've been playing with that and um, I play guitar and, and uh, playing music to my daughter is like a hobby. Yeah. And your role model? Uh, Virgil Abloh. Rest in peace. Right. Yeah. He's a huge role model for me. Never met him, but um, that kind of ability to be both gracious and also highly influential from people that I know that know him, uh, it seems like he was uh, an amazing person, not just an amazing uh, Swiss Army knife. Yeah. I actually worked with uh, Thomas, uh, who was my senior, and he was a big influential part in Virgil's life when he was teaching at IIT and he uh, said like go outside the architecture there are like it's huge opportunity it's amazing what he did what he's done yeah. it's crazy awesome and lastly is there anything else we didn't cover in this interview and you would like to share um well I mean if you're like if you are tech savvy uh I would say we have job openings at Monograph definitely check them out on the engineering team. A lot of our team members are from, have an architecture background or new, one of the new engineering managers. She's uh, uh, had six years of experience working at Autodesk before this, or a couple of years of experience in building connected, but she also studied architecture. Um, and I mean, we have so many of those stories and we love to find people like that, that um, and give them an opportunity to build this amazing tool for the industry. Right. Uh, 
thanks a lot george for sharing your thoughts with us it was an amazing interview have a nice rest of your day uh thank you so much major for inviting me and uh thanks everyone for sticking around and and listening in cheers